Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. I decided to start Amazing Stories because as a fan, I couldn't find a podcast that was 100% dedicated to sharing stories of adventure, fantasy, the supernatural, and macabre. So please, follow, share, and if you can, support my podcast, Amazing Stories, where every day I bring you a new story. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this amazing story. Previously on Murder in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. He always said he'd have a throat cut if she made life difficult for him. Passing why he was there. Pull strings and make things happen. The, the red, red apricot. She liked being called the mayor's wife. Her personal life was a mess. We ended our last episode with the death of the British business fixer, Neil Haywood, in room 1605 of the Lucky Holiday Hotel. We're going to leave that body there for the moment, because to understand why he died, we need to talk about someone else. We've already met the mayor's wife, Gu Kai Lai, in episode one. Now let's get to know the mayor, the most charismatic Chinese politician of his generation. He's the reason this ugly story of greed and betrayal turned into a crisis that changed China. We're going to spend the whole of today's episode on this incredible man. Listener discretion is advised. This story is going to involve lots of sex, violence and singing. His name is Bo Xilai, and he always stood out. Bo Xilai was the biggest figure in my class. We shared the same desk in the classroom for three years. He was tall and handsome, always smiling. The year is 1979. Classmate Gu Jian shared a desk with Bo Xilai and remembers the first day they met at university. So does their old teacher. He was uh, tall, gawky, very simply dressed, kind of bony. He had a big head. He was always kind of smiling, you know, and eager to take on the world. Stephen McKinnon spoke to us from Arizona. At that time, there was a shortage of beer in Beijing, if you can imagine that. And we did go out in the border areas of the, of the city limits and have picnics uh, once or twice. And I remember he was sort of a hero because he turned up with two cases of beer that he must have gotten from Zhongnan High or someplace like that. China's so rich now that it's hard to remember when a bottle of beer was a luxury. The Zhongnan High, Stephen McKinnon mentioned there, is the closed compound where the top leaders live and work. Bosilai spent the first part of his life in this exclusive world. His father was a hero of the civil war that brought the communists to power. But Chairman Mao threw him and the rest of the elite in jail during the Cultural Revolution, that mass political upheaval of the 1960s and 70s. Bosilai's mother committed suicide, and he lost a decade 
shoveling coal. But then Mao died, China woke up, and Bortilai could start planning a political career. Age 30, he finally got to university, where life was still basic. They dressed like workers, very ordinary, in sort of beat-up clothes. So we were living in dormitories, and it was a, a recovered university that had been overrun during the Cultural Revolution, so it had been empty, you know. So it was, it was pretty simple. I mean, there were horses still in stables there. It was pretty crude. And they were stacked up in typical dorm rooms, you know. It was not fancy, that's for sure. Bortilai lived like the rest during the week, but his dad was now out of jail and back at the top table. So come the weekend, Bortilai returned to that high-walled, secretive compound for the elite, Zhongnanhai. Sometimes he took his classmate, Gu Jian. At their house, what was special was that they had a satellite dish, which I'd never seen before, six metres wide. Bo Lai was very proud, saying they could watch TV from eight different countries. Under Chairman Mao, even listening to foreign radio could have got you executed. They had one room equipped with six receivers, with very big screens. Each would have cost thousands of dollars. The perks didn't stop at satellite TV. Sex was also part of this life of entitlement. At this point, Bortelai was already married to wife number one, not Gu Kailai, our key character. She's wife number two. But what you need to know is that being married never stopped Bortelai from playing the field. And now his family was back on top. Now he had status again, Bo Lai started to look for other women. Su Xiaoming was a huge star in those days. Bo Lai was really into her, always trying to look for her, trying to make friends with her. So he organised a concert for her. Everyone was amazed he could pull it off, and the tickets were free. It gave Bo Lai a lot of kudos. We're not saying that they had an affair, but Bo Lai was definitely now a catch, and he soon got a reputation for sleeping around, which didn't go down well with the communist old guard, to say nothing of his own wife and her powerful family. One day, he had a fever. He called and asked me over to Zhongnanghai. They had guards on every gate, and one outside Bo Lai's house told me to persuade him to stop having affairs. I remember when I entered Bo's room, he was lying there on a drip. He asked me what to do. Everyone was cursing him in Zhongnanghai, so his fever was partly brought on by the psychological pressure. I said to him, if you want to be a politician, don't do this. You mustn't do this. If you want to have affairs, go be a businessman and no one will care. But don't be a politician. He didn't say anything. He just carried on. Our man with a love fever, he's going to become one of China's top politicians. On to his first big job, 
You remember the worms from episode one. And the lonely winter fairground. In 1994, Bo Xilai became mayor of the coastal city of Dalian. By now, he was on to his second wife, Gu Kai Lai. This is where they met Neil Hayward. It looked like an obscure job in the provinces, but Bo Xilai was a mayor like no other. I'm not a politician. I'm just a mayor of Dalian. I can only do some concrete job for Dalian's people. I'm the manager of the city. He turned a rust belt port into a green and modern city. He built museums, five-star hotels, parks, squares. He was more like an emperor than a mayor. And his old teacher, Stephen McKinnon, came to the emperor's court to hear what all the fuss was about. He said, you know, you got to do three great things to make your city noticed. You want to have green everywhere, you know, and he planted trees and put grass in the main square there and, and so on. And you want to have uh, China's best football team, you know, soccer team or football team. That's important. And the other thing was fashion shows. Fashion shows? An emperor must have his concubines. We'll come back to the catwalk. But first, the day job. Bo Xilai made a profound impression on everyone he met. I found him an extraordinary person. I sort of likened him at the time. I told my wife that he's got the charisma of a Bill Clinton. Lloyd Donaldson met Bo Xilai often when he was responsible for opening Dalian's first five-star hotel. He now lives in Australia. There was a lot of activity around the opening. Certainly Bo Xilai was very involved. Um, and Lloyd, did you get the sense that he had a lot of attention to detail? Because this is one of the things that we hear about him. Yeah, look, he was very involved in the building of the hotel. He was very interested in the rooms and the amenities and he wanted it to be five-star. He wanted to have great restaurants and great food. Bortelai's attention to detail did not stop at taps and tiles. <laughs> He made a decision one day that the taxi drivers were not to honk their horns from tomorrow. <laughs> and it worked. It appeared there was an enormous amount of respect for this person. It's more than respect. The public loved him. And as far as I can make out from chatting to people in Dalian recently, they still love him. Stephen McKinnon. He would jump out of a car and talk to people on the street. <laughs> That's not the sort of thing you would expect from, say, the mayor of Dalian. Behind the charisma, there was a darker story. It started with those fashion shows. Bosilai used government money to set up a modelling school and filled it with gorgeous young women. And then he put on fashion shows to prove to his visitors just how beautiful Dalian was. Not just the greenery, not just the museums but the women too. Lawyer Larry Cheng. He surrounded himself with beautiful women. If you weren't beautiful, you couldn't work for him. He stayed late at work and hardly ever went home. His office lights were always on, even in the middle of the night. The people of Dalian thought he was working so hard, said they had a great mayor, but he was probably up to something with those beautiful women. 
Soon rumours started to spread among insiders about women going missing. I've talked to several government people in Dalian who said Bortilai's wife, Gukailai, did a good job of scaring off at least one rival. They also said there were young models who simply disappeared. We tried, but we couldn't get to the bottom of these rumours. But this is China. If you control a city, you control the police, you control the courts and you control the media. You can make people appear and you can make them disappear. Just remember that when we come back to the body we left in room 1605 of the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Bo Xilai was the pioneer in trampling China's law. This is Zhang Yongxiang. Bo Xilai wanted help in taking down one of his enemies. It's a complicated story, but in short, Mr Zhang ended up on the wrong side of the mayor. And then he found out what happens when you cross the boss. Bo Xilai set up a team to interrogate my family and they tortured us. We had nine days and nights of interrogation without sleep. Sixteen members of the family detained and police hunting for more. My cousin was on the train from Dalian to Shanghai to take my sister-in-law to hospital. On the way back, he somehow fell off the train and was killed. The police said he jumped, but I don't believe them. Did they beat him to death? Did they shoot him dead? The police owe us answers. And until they get those answers, the family refuse to bury the body. They've been waiting 15 years. That's the dark side of Borsilai's Dalian. None of it was visible to the public, though, as far as they were concerned. They had a perfect mayor and he had a perfect wife. People talked about them as a fairy tale couple. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Boshilai walked into a room, even if he wasn't the mayor of Dalian, he, he had a certain charisma and a certain style. She was attractive. As a couple, they stood out. They were like JFK and Jackie And just like America's famous first couple, they were ambitious. The marriage was by now a sham. As we heard in the last episode, Gukailai took her son to school in Britain and was dividing her time between Dalian and Bournemouth. But husband and wife still kept up appearances for the sake of the power and the money. Bortilai wanted to rule China, and for a time his prospects looked good. Power exuded from him. It surrounded him. Uh, and when you were dealing with him, you felt you were dealing with the main man. By 2004, Bortilai was playing for China on the international stage. He'd been promoted to Minister of Commerce, a job that put him across the negotiating table from Peter Mandelson, who was European Trade Commissioner. And at first, Bo was completely unhelpful. No, 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 no and no uh, were the answers I got. He and Borshilai were trying to hammer out a crucial deal on textiles. And this story tells you everything you need to know about Borshilai, the operator. 
And then suddenly I remember I was at a, a meeting with ministers in Cairo, I got a call. Bo will see you in Shanghai the day after tomorrow. He's decided he wants to talk to you about this. So via heaven knows how many different connections, I arrived tired, not entirely prepared, but nonetheless relieved in Shanghai that he was prepared to talk about this. He lined up a hundred officials down the one side of a table in the state guest house in Shanghai. I arrived with sort of three men and a dog as my team, and he sat down to negotiate this. And we went on for a good, solid 12 hours, during which me and my colleagues were neither fed properly or given very much to drink. Their side were all being handed out large vitamin C tablets. I could see I asked for one, and they said, not until you behave better. But eventually, we got an agreement. And it was announced in front of a huge press conference in Shanghai at four o'clock in the morning. This agreement is a win-win-win agreement, and I think that it's one that everyone cares about. I think Bo knew exactly what he was going to end up doing. He knew what sort of agreement he would eventually embrace. I was kept, though, completely in the dark until the last moment, when finally he, you know, he did the business. So not just playing for China internationally but winning against seasoned opponents. And the timing was great. A big national leadership change was coming up and Bo Xilai hoped to make it to the top table. For China nerds, that's the standing committee of the Communist Party Politburo, where a handful of men make all the key decisions. Backing him, his father, a revered and still immensely powerful party elder. Seriously elder, 98. Just when Bosilai needed his father most, he died. And this is the turning point which will take us to the Lucky Holiday Hotel. The loss of his father left Bo Xilai exposed. Chinese politics is all about the patriarch, the clan, the tribe. Think of how many people Bo Xilai had crossed, his jilted first wife, her powerful family, the communist old guard who was scandalised by his sex life, so many more. He drove his juniors hard, he undermined his seniors. And then there were the political rivals, the men who were also fighting for a place at that top table. So. Bosilai had a long list of enemies who now united against him. Take that, Mr. Sex Machine. His enemies sent him as far as they could to Chongqing in southwest China, a place where they thought he'd be out of their way. How wrong they were. Chongqing is kind of like the Wild West. It's, um, I mean, it's a thousand or so miles from Beijing, from the coast. It's mountainous, it's fog-bound, people live on chilli peppers and hot bubbling oil and see, you know, see food as a kind of take it or leave it on top of the chilies. Chongqing people are notoriously hot-tempered is another thing worth mentioning. <laughs> and our driver seems to be one of those to reinforce that stereotype. He is getting very aggravated. 
and they are they're just noisy and quarrelsome I suppose by reputation and you know I used to live in Chongqing I think there's a certain amount of truth in that the gangsters the gambling the vendettas everything is bigger and wilder in this city of 30 million 30 million quarrelsome chili eaters Bortelai's enemies thought Chongqing would be the end of his political career. More on that in the next episode. But by his side was an even bigger problem, his wife, Gu Kalai. Bortelai's old classmate, Gu Jian. There are women who are very beautiful and kind, but there are some women who are beautiful but whose ambition brings disaster to men. In Chinese history, there are lots of cautionary tales about the dangers of letting dragon ladies meddle from behind the imperial throne. Of course, I don't think that all women bring disaster, but some of them do, like Gu Kai Lai. The clouds were gathering. In November 2011, Gu Kai Lai summoned Neil Hayward from his home in Beijing to Chongqing. By now, the British fixer had two children studying at an expensive private school, and the family lived in an exclusive villa compound. But he was short of money. When he got the summons from Gu Kai Lai, he couldn't afford to say no. Before he left Beijing, he had dinner with his old friend James Richards. Neil became, as time went on, increasingly disenchanted with the natural entitlement to privilege and power that he found amongst these people. He certainly found the, the, the kind of atmosphere of distrust, of suspicion, the backstabbing, uh, increasingly oppressive. And my last meeting with him, I remember coming away thinking that he did seem quite unhappy and depressed and anxious he said nothing about being afraid of being attacked or murdered or anything of the kind. But I came away with a sense of unease, of his unease, about his situation in China. And uh, I think at that point he would have wanted and probably was wished to leave China in the near future. Neil Hayward did not leave China. On November the 13th, 2011, he boarded a flight to Chongqing. Sitting next to him, Gu Kailai's loyal servant, a man who knew what was about to happen in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.